and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Just a couple of quick notes before we begin. First, since we last spoke, I've had the opportunity to appear on two other podcasts. One of those is the History Voyager podcast with Ben Kitchings. That is a relevantly new program that started as a deep dive into the Spanish influenza pandemic of the early 1900s and the parallels between the Spanish flu and today's current situation. However, since uh, taking his deep dive into the Spanish flu, Ben has gone on to look at a number of subjects, both uh, former and, indeed, current events, and uh, he does interviews as well. Uh, He has asked me to share with you uh, his interview on the subject of homelessness, which is in the show notes to today's episode, but if you go to his show as well, you will also see uh, our interview right near the top of the listings. The other show I appeared on was the By Podcasters for Podcasters podcast with Michael, a.k.a. Fritz, Fritzius. Uh, Michael is an experienced marketing guru and podcasting guy, and he has essentially started an inside baseball type show. So for 90% of you, maybe not something you'd be interested in hearing us just talk about how the show's done and everything. On the other hand, if you are into podcasting yourself, or if you'd like to check out Fritz's show and see some of the other people he's interviewed, which are several, uh, you can find a link to our interview as well in the link to today's show description. And our other quick announcement is a shout-out and a thank you. Uh, This is to Janae from Syracuse. Uh, She is the show's very first Patreon subscriber. And as the very first, I think she merits a shout-out. And uh, you know what? We're going to start doing that. For those of you who sign up now while the show is in its infancy, if you want, you too can have a shout-out at the beginning of an episode. And if you're wondering how you can do that, well, the link to my Patreon page, conveniently enough, is also in the description to this episode. Now that I've plugged myself to death, on with the episode. Speaking of which, where were we? Right, right, we left off at the end of the Second Crusade. Now, the Second Crusade had been a disaster for the Crusaders, as you'll recall. The French and German armies, uh, most of them died on the way to Jerusalem, and then when they tried to conquer the city of Damascus, uh, a bunch of people took bribes and they all left, right? But what had kicked off that whole war to begin with, if you'll remember was that there was this Seljuk Turkish leader named Zengi. And Zengi had been obsessed himself with this idea of conquering Damascus, right? And in the process of laying the groundwork to take Damascus, he conquers the crusader state, the the county of Edessa, 
And that is what kicks off the Second Crusade. Well, we talked all about that crusade, but we never talked about what in the world happened to Zengi and his whole dream of taking over Damascus. Well, we never talked about it because it never happened. See, Zengi died in September of the year 1146. That is, two years after conquering the county of Edessa, and a year before the Second Crusade itself would even properly kick off. So he was already dead. He had been abusing some Frankish slaves when he was drunk, and according to the stories, when he was passed out, some of the slaves stabbed him to death in his sleep. Whether you believe that particular story of his end or not, he never did achieve his dream of conquering Damascus. But what Zengi would do is leave behind a new Turkic dynasty in the Middle East. See, upon his death, his sons would split his territory. The older, Saif al-Din Ghazi, inherits the Emirate of Mosul, that is, in the north of modern-day Iraq. And the younger, Nur ad-Din, he inherits the Emirate of Aleppo, that's in modern-day Syria. And this is the area near where Zengi had conquered the county of Edessa. Well, see, after Zengi's death, the Count of Edessa, Jocelyn II, had taken advantage of the turmoil in the Turkish ranks and retaken the city in October of 1146. But Jocelyn has been unable to retake the citadel. Right, so you have this walled city, and he's gotten inside, but then Inside the city is a fortress, and the Turkish garrison is just sort of holed up inside this fortress, and Jocelyn sends for help from the county of Tripoli and from the kingdom of Jerusalem, and nobody sends help. And the next month, in November, Nur ad-Din has time to get together his relief army and show up and... Jocelyn is forced once more to surrender the city of Edessa. And incidentally, while Jocelyn himself is eventually allowed to go free, the residents of the city, most of them Armenians, are not so lucky. Nur ad-Din commits a massacre there to discourage the people of Edessa from supporting any further crusader efforts. This complete failure of Jocelyn to sort of take back the county of Edessa, by the way, it explains why, when you look at the Second Crusade, uh, a year later, none of the crusaders even tried or made any serious effort to take Edessa back. Right? They were all down by Damascus. Why? Because... Jocelyn had just been beaten in Edessa again. Nobody really thought that was a good place to try and conquer. And, incidentally, in 1149, this 
new Muslim emir in Aleppo, Nur ad-Din, well, he would be one of the Muslim leaders who was called upon by the emir of Damascus during the Crusader siege there. And as you'll recall, the Crusaders would do a pretty good job of defeating themselves by succumbing to bribery, and Nur ad-Din's help would not be needed at Damascus. But he had still been busy. In 1148, even as the First Crusade was raging, uh, not content with ruling Aleppo and Edessa, Nur ad-Din had launched an assault of his own against the Principality of Antioch. If you'll recall, that is, at this point, the northernmost of the Crusader states along the coast of the Mediterranean, and it is ruled by Raymond of Poitiers. That is the creepy uncle who had maybe successfully, maybe not, uh, tried to seduce his niece, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was the wife of the French king and crusader leader Louis. Well, anyway, this guy, Raymond of Poitiers, had pushed back Nur ad-Din's invasion in 1148, and in 1149, Nur ad-Din would attack again. This time he would use a cavalry-heavy force. Right? Remember, he is still a Turkic leader, and the Turks love their cavalry, particularly their cavalry archers. And this force of about 6,000 men proceeds to besiege the border city of Inab. Now, Raymond leads an army in response, attempting once again to push Nur ad-Din out of the territory. And he doesn't do this alone. He does this teaming up with an assassin ally named Ali ibn Wafa, The assassins were a Muslim sect who were opposed to Nur ad-Din. They had sort of their own beliefs, and when they went to war, they were known primarily for killing uh, high-level targets, sort of pinpointing them and killing them in secret, which is where we get our word assassination. And at this point, the assassins and... Uh, Raymond of Poitiers, the leader of Antioch, well, they are allied. But even so, Raymond's force is not terribly numerous, right? It consists of roughly 400 knights and about a 1,000 foot soldiers. Now, those knights in particular would have been very heavily armed and heavily armored, but that's not a lot against Nur ad-Din's 6,000 cavalry. But when this force first comes within sight of Nur ad-Din's scouts, uh, and they report that uh, you know Raymond is coming with 1,400 men, well, Nur ad-Din assumes that this tiny force, it just has to be like the vanguard for a larger army, right? Now, Raymond's not really coming at him with 1,400 guys, is he? So, assuming that there's a larger force on the way, Nur ad-Din gives up the siege of Inab and withdraws. But Raymond is overconfident, and instead of camping in the city for the night, 
He camps out in the open field, outside the city, ready to pursue Nur ad-Din further. And Nur ad-Din still has scouts watching Raymond, right? He's retreating, but he's keeping an eye out. He wants to know, is, is, is Raymond following me? How many guys does he really have? And these scouts start coming back to Nur ad-Din and saying, that, that 1,400 guys, that's, that's the whole army. And so Nur ad-Din you know, turns his army around, goes back, and surrounds Raymond's army in the night. And in the morning, uh, they wake to find themselves surrounded, and almost all of Raymond's men are killed. Now, to his credit, Raymond does have the chance to escape and uh, instead chooses to stay and make a last stand uh, with his men, uh, many of whom cannot get away. And incidentally, in this fight, yet another blow to the Principality of Antioch, uh, Ibn Wafa is also killed, and that ends their alliance with the assassins. And the Battle of Inab does, in fact, really end the Principality of Antioch in all but name. Without any serious opposition, Nur ad-Din fights his way through a couple of other small garrisons on his way to the city of Antioch, which he besieges. And that city is unable to defend itself. Uh, Raymond's widow, Constance and the Patriarch of Antioch, they raise enough money from their own personal funds to buy Nur ad-Din off to essentially ransom the city, and Nur ad-Din accepts. He does not take the city proper. Uh, he leaves Antioch itself to the Crusaders, but he takes a bunch of other territory from the Principality, and effectively... The Crusaders' control now only extends within a few miles of the city. And as a symbol of this victory, Nur ad-Din walks down to the shores of the Mediterranean and bathes in the sea. And then he goes home, having taken most of the Principality of Antioch and leaving before the king of Jerusalem and a thousand knights Templar show up to make him fight another battle. So by the end of 1149, really by the end of the Second Crusade, or the end of last episode, the Crusader states have been reduced to one and some pieces. Edessa is completely gone. Tripoli is a vassal of Jerusalem at this point. And Antioch is just a city-state that will be a Byzantine vassal within a few years. So basically it's just Jerusalem left. And to drive home the point even further, Nur ad-Din captures Jocelyn, the Count of what used to be Edessa. Uh, he catches him uh, out in the countryside trying to raise another army to resurrect the county of Edessa. And this time, Nur ad-Din has Jocelyn uh, paraded through the streets of Aleppo, 
then publicly blinded and imprisoned. And in prison, Jocelyn will remain for nine more years before receiving the last rites from an Eastern Orthodox priest and breathing his last in 1159. And... Five years after the Second Crusade, in 1154, Nur ad-Din would fulfill his father Zengi's lifelong ambition by conquering the city of Damascus. Uh, he would take advantage of a local leadership crisis and a rebellion in the city to seize control. And with that victory, all of Syria is now united under his rule. And for a few years, the Middle East goes into a protracted stalemate where the Zengids, right, these uh, Turks under Nur ad-Din and the Crusader states are uh, constantly uh, in minor skirmishes and uh, maneuvering for advantage, but nobody is really able to get the other hand. And that remains the case until in the year 1163, something changes. King Baldwin III, the king of Jerusalem, dies. And he is succeeded by his brother, a man named Almeric, who quickly forms an alliance with Emperor Manuel of the Byzantine Empire. And together, both Almeric and Manuel decide to launch a joint invasion of Egypt. Now, this might sound totally bonkers, but it's not really. Uh, see, Egypt at the time is divided in a civil war. And there are two viziers, right? The vizier is sort of the head advisor to the Egyptian caliph and is, at this point in history, really the ruler in all but name. Well, now there are two viziers, and one has called for help from Nur ad-Din in this civil war, and the other side has appealed to Emperor Manuel and the Crusader states for help. Why would a Muslim power call upon the crusader states, of all people, for help. The reason is, if you'll remember, Egypt at this time is under the Shia Muslim Fatimid dynasty. Right? These are people who believe that Muslims should be ruled by a direct blood relative, a descendant of the Prophet, and in this case they are ruled by descendants of uh, Muhammad's daughter Fatima, hence the name of the dynasty, the Fatimid dynasty. And meanwhile, the Zengids and most of the rest of the Muslim world at this time, uh, these are Sunni Muslims, right? They believe in following a caliph who is also a worldly a king, right? That the caliph should represent not necessarily just the bloodline of the prophet, but 
also the Muslim people in the real world. Uh, and this is a debate that's been going on within Islam for, you know, at this point, uh, you know, a few hundred years. And uh, so it would make sense that when facing aggression from a Sunni Muslim power, a Shia Muslim power might uh, look for help from a crusader state. Right? This is not necessarily just a two-sided conflict in the Middle East at this time. This is more of a three-sided and indeed multi-sided business. But the involvement of the Crusader states and the Byzantines and the Zangid Turks, that just prolongs the civil war in Egypt. Right. Neither side is ever able to get an edge. There's one point where, as a matter of fact, Nur ad-Din is successful, but then seeing that uh, Nur ad-Din's generals are not going to leave the country, the winning vizier in Egypt switches sides and calls the crusaders back in so as not to be conquered by the Zengids. It's all very involved. But suffice it to say that neither side, neither the Crusaders nor the Zengids, during this time is ever able to really gain some advantage. And part of that's because also they keep getting distracted by events back up in the Levant, right? They're uh, dueling for advantage in Egypt. Well, they're still friction on the border between uh, Jerusalem and Antioch and Tripoli and uh, the Muslim territories in Syria. So uh, there are times where conflict you know, breaks off down in Egypt and armies go marching up to Syria and then start fighting there. Uh, can be a confusing period to track, but in 1167, uh, there is a battle that's a little bit more decisive, and that is the Battle of Al-Babain. Now, Al-Babain is located right outside of Giza in Egypt. So picture, if you will, a battle fought between crusaders and Turks with the pyramids in the background. Because that's what we're dealing with here, and the crusaders are led by none other than King Alberic himself. And the Zengid general, a man named Assad al-Din Shirku, uses the classic Turkish feigned retreat maneuver. We've covered this one in a couple of previous episodes, right? The Turks were famous for it. The Mongols would be famous for it later. It repeats itself over and over throughout history, but it always seems to work. And what Shirku does is he orders the troops in the center of his army to pretend like they're scared and they're running away. Right? They have a feigned retreat, and a bunch of the crusaders start chasing after these retreating troops and end up getting separated from the main crusader body. Now, 
under ideal circumstances, then, if uh, you're one of these uh, cavalry archer armies, you can sort of defeat your enemy piecemeal. That doesn't quite work out at Alba Bane. It ends up being a set of smaller skirmishes as different isolated groups of the armies fight against each other. In some areas, the Crusaders win. In some areas, uh, the Zengids win. But ultimately, this battle is more costly for the Crusaders than it is for the Zengid Turks. And it all but ends Crusader efforts in Egypt. Now, Almeric himself would make one more go at it. The Knights Hospitaller, one of the orders of crusading monks, would convince him to march down to Cairo to try and conquer the Egyptian capital in one stroke, but along the way he stops to sack a city, and while he is doing so, his men massacre a whole bunch of Egyptian Christians. This is in the year 1169, and, well, Almeric was going to need the support of those Egyptian Christians if he was going to control the territory after taking it, and after what just happened, it doesn't look like he's going to get that kind of help. So he and his army withdraw, and that is that. And like it or not, at this point, uh, the Egyptians are now firmly in the hand of Nur ad-Din's armies. These armies are still led by that general, Assad al-Din Shirku, who we'll just call Shirku. And the Egyptians try and bargain with him. The victorious vizier, a man named Shawar, offers Shirku 30,000 dinars to leave the country. Those are fairly large gold coins. That's... Several million dollars. That's a, a, a lot of money. <laughs> uh, and Shirku refuses to leave the country. And he ominously makes his camp in front of the city of Cairo. Basically has his army right on Shawar's doorstep. And this is what the chronicler William of Tyre has to say about this. He says, quote, He placed his camp before Cairo, and as if his entry were to be peaceful, he remained there patiently for a few days. Like a prudent man, he breathed no harsh words and manifested no hatred. He concealed his designs with the shrewdness of which he was a master. The vizier Shawar came out to visit him daily in the camps, accompanied by a very large retinue, and with much pomp, and after his dutiful visit, with an affectionate greeting and the giving of gifts, the vizier returned to the city. The complete safety of the successive visits and returns seemed to promise well, and the fact that one time after another he was honorably received built up the vizier's confidence. He felt secure and trusted far too much in the good faith of the Turks, which gave his murderer this chance. Secretly, Shirku gave orders to his men that on the following day, when he went out at dawn as if to walk by the water, they should do away with the vizier when he came on his customary visit. 
Shawar, at the usual time, went to the camp to make his customary visit and pay his usual respects. The ministers of death ran up to him and carried out the execution which had been ordered. They threw him to the ground, stabbed him with their swords, and cut off his head. When Shawar's sons saw what was happening, they mounted their horses and fled to Cairo. Terrified, they went down on their knees to beg the caliph for their lives. The caliph is said to have replied that they might hope for their lives on condition that they make no secret agreement with the Turks. They violated this agreement at once, however, by sending representatives secretly to arrange a truce with Shirku. When the caliph heard of this, he ordered them both to be slain by the sword. Thus, while the king was absent, Shawar was removed from the scene and Shirku carried out his designs. He occupied the kingdom and went to the caliph to pay his respects. He was received with many honors and granted the dignity and office of vizier. Thus he acquired power by the sword and seized all of Egypt for himself. Unquote. So, basically, what Shirku did was made friends with the Egyptian vizier, then killed him, and then got his sons to betray their vow to the Egyptian caliph not to make any deals with him, so that the caliph killed the vizier's sons, and, and Shirku himself simply goes to the caliph and presents himself, and the caliph wisely makes Shirku his vizier. The last thing Shirku wants to have to do is to forcibly depose the Egyptian caliph. This ruler who, puppet though he may be, is nonetheless supposedly the direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, at least as far as the Egyptian populace is concerned. That's going to create all kinds of problems he doesn't need. The caliph understands that Shirku has his entire army right outside the gates of Cairo. He understands there will be no help coming now from the Crusader states. And he gives Shirku what he wants, right? Shirku is now a general of the Zengid leader, Nur ad-Din, and he is also the vizier of the Egyptian caliph. And in addition to bringing Egypt into the Zengid fold, the Battle of Al-Babain would give rise to yet another important new leader. See, while the tactics used in the battle were Turkic, Shirku himself is a Kurdish general who knows these tactics by experience. And those retreating troops in the center of the Turkish line, right, the ones who pretended to run away and then turned around later and fought, well, those troops were also led by a Kurd. That Kurd was Shirku's nephew, al-Nasir Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, 
often shortened to Salah al-Din, or simply Saladin for short. Thirty years old at the time of the Battle of Alba Bain, Saladin had been born in 1137 in Tikrit in modern-day Iraq to Kurdish Muslim nobility. As a matter of fact, a couple of centuries earlier, uh, some of his ancestors had ruled a sultanate of their own in that general area. Uh, but by now, they were uh, vassals, if you will, of, well, at the time, uh, Zengi. And this caused some trouble for Saladin's father and his family in that particular part of Iraq, because Saladin's father was... Uh, fiercely loyal to Zengi, and as a matter of fact, on the very night of Saladin's birth, uh, the entire family had to flee uh, from Iraq. And they would ultimately end up moving to Damascus, where they would be right at the center of the Second Crusade, and indeed, uh, shortly thereafter, right at the center of the growing Zengid dynasty. As a child, Saladin receives a thorough education. Uh, he studies mathematics and alchemy, and as a young man, he can read and write Arabic and Kurdish, but his favorite studies are religious. He is known for spending a lot of time at the religious schools, and for a time, some people in his circle even speculate that he may dedicate his life uh, to becoming an imam or something of that nature. As we know, he does not do, uh, but uh, he also loves horses, uh, and he has... Uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of Arabian horse bloodlines. He's so obsessed with uh, breeding them. Well, at the age of 26, in the year 1163, uh, he is sent, along with his uncle, uh, this general, Assad al-Din Shirku, on that invasion of Egypt, and he comes to prominence during the war, uh, gaining a reputation not just for his skill as a battlefield commander, uh, but also for his piety, right? Remember, he is a very religious young man. And in early 1169, when Shirku becomes vizier of Egypt, he appoints Saladin as a senior advisor. See, in March of 1169, just a few months after taking power, Shirku dies. And amazingly, the Egyptian sultans, right, the leaders who rule under the caliph, well, they vote to make Saladin the new vizier. Now, it's a little bit unclear and indeed controversial why exactly they voted this way, why the caliph accepted this. The main theory, so to speak, is that 
the Egyptians sort of recognized that at least for the time being, Turkic rule of some kind was inevitable. So why not go with the Kurdish leader instead of someone who was even more Turkish, if you will? There are other alternative explanations, but regardless, this puts Saladin in the unenviable position which Shirku had just been in, right? See, theoretically, he is the most powerful man in Egypt, but he's also kind of sort of a foreign occupier, and at the same time, he has to answer to two masters simultaneously. He is technically a vassal to Nur ad-Din in Damascus, but he also has to answer to Caliph al-Adid in Cairo, right? at least theoretically. And there is trouble almost immediately. Uh, some senior soldiers and emirs form a plot to have Saladin assassinated, and when this plot is uncovered, he has the ringleader of the plot, the palace's majordomo, the head servant, a eunuch named Naji Muthamin al-Khalifa. He has him arrested and killed, but spares the rest of the plotters. And he tries almost from the outset to reconcile the Egyptian people to their new Sunni Muslim masters. And what I mean by this is he founds madrasas, which are Muslim schools, usually of a legal bent, uh, but uh, nonetheless Muslim religious schools, uh, throughout the Fatimid Caliphate. And these schools teach Saladin's preferred form of Sunni Islam, right? not Shia Islam. So he is raising a generation of scholars now, at least starting to, who have at least, even if they have been raised as Shia Muslims at home, have been educated in the Sunni tradition. But the founding of the madrasas itself is not without controversy. See, a large portion of the Egyptian army is made up of 50,000 black African soldiers. Now, these soldiers are fervent Shiites, and they absolutely refuse to live under Sunni rule. It's just not going to happen. So Saladin has to put down this revolt. Uh, he's able to take advantage in part of the fact that he's near Cairo. He has more access to food and supplies and things of that nature. And after putting down this revolt, he takes the opportunity to replace several of these African military units outright uh, with his own Syrian troops. Not only does this increase his hold on the country, but by getting rid of local Egyptian troops, it also puts the caliph in a bind because these new troops, not only are they not Egyptian, but 
almost all of them are Sunni Muslims, so they don't even recognize the Egyptian caliph's religious authority. And finally, uh, Saladin goes after the government bureaucracy. He fills the major government posts with his own family members, uh, gives his father, Ayub, a major government position. Uh, he fills as many civilian posts as possible with uh, people who are loyal to him. And this gives him control of civilian as well as the military government. And through his madrasas, he's able to start establishing a system of Sunni jurisprudence that's going to interpret the laws more in his favor, which is also going to give him an edge. But that's what's just going on in Egypt, right? What is Saladin going to do for his other master, Nur ad-Din? Well, in 1170, he's going to participate in joint military operations with Nur ad-Din against the Kingdom of Jerusalem. His forces will besiege the city of Darum, and when King Almaric's relief force gets close to the city, uh, Saladin withdraws and he sacks the city of Gaza. And he collects a bunch of booty and damages the city and harasses the crusaders without actually you know, putting his men at any serious risk and engaging in any pitched battle. This is the kind of low-level warfare that is what happens most years during the Crusader era, is this kind of you know, low-level harassing and raiding. And a year later, in 1171, uh, plans are afoot for similar operations against the Kingdom of Jerusalem. But then Saladin suffers a personal tragedy. His father dies in a horseback riding accident, and he has to withdraw from the campaign before it can really get going. And this withdrawal from the campaign makes Nur ad-Din suspicious of Saladin's loyalty. So he decides he's going to test Saladin. And he demands that Saladin abolish Shia rule in Egypt and make Sunni Islam the official state religion. Now, Nur ad-Din sends this command in June. But... Saladin does not act until September, and it's not hard to understand why. See, if Saladin does this, this is not just a religious statement, right? This would be a statement that the Fatimid Caliph in Egypt is illegitimate, right? It would also be a political statement, basically a statement of open rebellion, On September 13th, 1171, something really convenient happens. Uh, Fatimid Caliph Al-Adid dies. And depending on who you ask, 
he may or may not have been poisoned. Now, whether he was or was not poisoned is more or less beside the point. See, what is far more important is that four days after the caliph's untimely and unfortunate demise, when Friday sermons are read throughout the Egyptian caliphate, they are read in the Sunni form, not the Shia form. And along with the sermons, there is a list of condemnations of various crimes, both factual and alleged, by Fatimid caliphs throughout the centuries. And the prayers themselves are dedicated to the Abbasid caliph in Baghdad. Remember, the Abbasid Caliphate is still technically around, controlling an area around Baghdad, and many Shia Muslims swear loyalty to the Abbasid Caliph. Uh, why? Well, it's easy to do. He's not actually very powerful, so he can sort of serve a similar function to what the Pope serves in Rome, right? Uh, the Pope has a papal army, but it's uh, fairly small compared to any of the major European armies. But various European kings can all sort of claim to follow the Pope while simultaneously fighting and taking territory from each other. Well, the same thing is happening in the Muslim world. It's just politics uh, with different names put on the various players. But... With these prayers and this swearing of allegiance to the Abbasid Caliph, over 250 years of Shia Fatimid rule would be ended in Egypt. And, incidentally, Nur ad-Din would be mollified. A couple years later, in 1173, Saladin would fight off a Nubian invasion from the south. And simultaneously, one of his brothers would be invading across North Africa as far as the edge of the Almohad Caliphate uh, in Tunisia. Right, that gives you some idea of how Saladin has improved conditions in Egypt. Right. A decade ago, in 1163, Egypt was in civil war and was basically the battleground for a proxy war between the Byzantines and the Crusaders on the one hand and the Zengid Turks on the other hand. And here we are in 1173, and Saladin is fighting off an invasion from the south, from the Nubians and African people, and he's also got another army out conquering more territory in North Africa. That is quite the turnaround in just a 10-year period. And it would not end there either. A year later, in 1174, another brother leads an expeditionary force to conquer Yemen. He doesn't take the entire end of the Arabian Peninsula, but he does take the 
uh, port city of Aden and the territory around there, which is a very valuable area for trade and for diplomacy that's one of the areas in Yemen where all the money is. And during this period, after he seizes the Nubian city of Ibrim as part of this counter-invasion that Saladin is conducting, uh, he sends Nur ad-Din a gift of some of the booty he has captured. He sends 60,000 dinars, which is millions and millions of dollars. He sends additional money in the form of jewels. And he sends an elephant as a gift. And despite Saladin sending all this money and stuff, Nur ad-Din remains suspicious. He thinks Saladin's holding out on him. I mean, look how much fighting Saladin seems to be able to do. How can he possibly not have even more loot squirreled away somewhere? So Nur ad-Din sends an auditor to Cairo to determine the correct amount of tribute that Saladin should be paying. Tensions are high. There are rumors that Nur ad-Din is actually planning to invade Egypt. He was certainly making some contingency plans. He had certainly called up some troops and started getting them deployed for a possible invasion, but it's not clear he'd chosen 100% to go ahead. But the point being, tensions are high between Nur ad-Din and his erstwhile vassal Saladin in Egypt. And of course, the history buff in me would love to see here the ultimate showdown between two of the great all-time Islamic military commanders. Of course, it would have been a horrible tragedy for the people on the ground, but I would still like to know how such a battle would have turned out. Well, we don't really know, because before anything can come of all this... Nur ad-Din gets a tonsil infection, and he dies from this tonsil infection in May of 1174. He's surprisingly young. He was only in his 50s at the time. But at his death, he leaves the Zengid dynasty to his seven-year-old son, a young man named Asali Ismail al-Malik. And Asali is the new emir of Damascus and Aleppo. Now, Saladin makes a public pledge of loyalty to Asali. He says that he will be Asali's sword against his enemies, but in August of that year, an emir named Gumushtigin from Aleppo, uh, he claims sole guardianship of Asali and begins removing his rivals from political positions. So, instead of being, you know, sort of having a regency council, which is what's supposed to happen in this situation, 
Asali is now uh, being ruled for by a single uh, emir from Aleppo. And, uh, you know, it's only taken three months for this situation to go south, right? But uh, the other emirs uh, in Syria appeal to Saladin for aid. Now, I should mention at this point that previously Saladin could not have invaded Syria and maintained credibility as a legitimate Islamic leader, right? The rules of warfare in the Islamic world at the time were such that one could not invade the lands of one's former master. So had Saladin done anything other than pledge his sword to Asali, right? He would have been a bad Muslim. I shouldn't say that. I guess he didn't have to pledge his sword to him. But you know, had he invaded, he certainly would have been violating the rules of Islamic warfare. But all of a sudden, with this one emir taking. Uh, Asali under his wing, so to speak. Saladin has credibility. Well, he's being Asali's sword. He's making sure that uh, the kingdom is properly administered by all of the emirs during Asali's youth, so Asali can receive a uh, well-maintained emirate when he is fully grown. Whatever his pretext... In November of 1174, Saladin rides to Damascus with 700 picked riders on fast horses, and he arrives outside the gates of the city on the 23rd. Now, he politely asks for the defenders to let him into the city. The defenders are technically Asali's men, and therefore they don't really know if they're supposed to be following Gamushtigin or not, but they're not going to let Saladin in. Uh, so Saladin gets a hold of one of his brothers who's in the area, uh, who brings in a bunch of more troops, and after four more days, the city's defenders in Damascus have a change of heart and open the gates. And Saladin would take control of the city, mostly peacefully, and there would be some fighting over the following years between Saladin and other emirs loyal to Gamushtigin. And it seems that whether in his own right or simply because of what he'd been told by Gamushtigin, Asali actually preferred Gamushtigin to be the sole regent of the kingdom. He made many public statements to that effect. But regardless, the war would ultimately come to an end with Saladin mostly in control of not just Egypt and the old Fatimid territory in North Africa and the areas he'd conquered down there, but 
Saladin also gets to be in charge of Damascus and the surrounding area and is essentially the ruler of everything from the Aleppo suburbs to Tunisia, right? Asali remains officially the minor heir to the emir of Aleppo, and he ultimately never gets to become emir in his own right. He would die, it seems, of natural causes at the age of 18 in 1181, leaving Saladin in full command of all of not just Egypt, but also the old Zengid territory. And Saladin's line would come to be called the Ayyubid dynasty, after his father Ayyub. But even so, Saladin would have to spend most of his time between the 1170s and the early 1180s fighting off local revolts and solidifying his control of Syria. And this would include some fighting against the assassins. There is more than one incident where they attempt to kill him outright. A couple of times his guards catch assassins sneaking into Saladin's camp to kill him. It's a long, drawn-out business, but it's mostly... Again, this sort of low-level raiding-type warfare. And Saladin is also mindful during this time that he is going to have to rule these people once he wins. In one incident, he famously takes all the booty from a successful siege, divides it up equally, and then gives it out to the captured defenders of the besieged city and sets them free. And this type of generosity uh, earns him a lot of loyalty and goodwill from the Syrian people. But in the meantime, right, he's still engaging with all these low-level fights and revolts. You might be wondering why the Crusaders aren't taking more advantage of this. And the reason is that uh, almost at the same time Nur ad-Din dies in 1174, uh, so does King Amalric of Jerusalem. And he leaves the kingdom to his 13-year-old son, a nephew named Baldwin IV. Okay... So Jerusalem's got a young leader, but he's 13. He's not seven like Asali, right? But Baldwin is known to history as Baldwin the leper. And this is not a misnomer. Right? When people say this, they mean it literally. Now... Leprosy is a bacterial infection, which is why you don't see it today, really, in the developed world. Well, if you do see it, it's 
cured with a round of antibiotics, right? And where you see it in the developing world, uh, you know, anywhere you find it, as soon as that society gets any kind of decent healthcare system, it goes away. But back in these days, before antibiotics, uh, leprosy was incurable. And this is an infection that first attacks your nervous system. And after attacking nerves, particularly starting in your extremities, the bacteria actually starts to uh, cause your flesh to rot away. You eventually have to have limbs amputated and the disease will progress until the person inevitably dies. And this is how the situation is described by William of Tyre, our historian who we relied on so much in the last episode. Well, he was getting up there in years by this point, but he was actually present and this is what he has to say of the young King Baldwin. Quote, The sixth of the Latin kings of Jerusalem was the Lord Baldwin IV, son of the Lord King Amalric of illustrious memory, and of the Countess Agnes, daughter of the younger Count Jocelyn of Edessa. While Baldwin was still a boy, about nine years old, and while I was still Archdeacon of Tyre, King Amalric put him in my care, after asking me many times, and with the promise of his favor, to teach him and to instruct him in the liberal arts. While he was in my hands, I took constant care of him, as is fitting with the king's son, and I both carefully instructed him in literary studies, and also watched over the formation of his character. It so happened that once when he was playing with some other noble boys who were with him, they began pinching one another with their fingernails on the hands and arms, as playful boys will do. The others evinced their pain with yells, but although his playmates did not spare him, Baldwin bore the pain altogether too patiently, as if he did not feel it. When this had happened several times, it was reported to me. At first I thought that this happened because of his endurance, not because of insensitivity. Then I called him, and began to ask what was happening. At last I discovered that about half of his right hand and arm were numb, so that he did not feel pinches or even bites there. I began to have doubts, as I recalled the words of the wise man, he means the writings of Hippocrates, it is certain that an insensate member is far from healthy, and that he who does not feel sick is in danger. I reported all this to his father, Physicians were consulted and prescribed repeated fermentations, anointings, and even poisonous drugs to improve his condition, but in vain. For, as we later understood more fully as time passed, and as we made more comprehensive observations, this was the beginning of an incurable disease. I cannot keep my eyes dry while speaking of it, for as he began to reach the age of puberty, it became apparent that he was suffering from that most terrible disease, leprosy. Each day he grew more ill. The extremities in the face were the most affected, so that the hearts of his faithful men were touched by compassion when they looked at him. 
Baldwin was adept at literary studies. Daily, he grew more promising and developed a more loving disposition. He was handsome for his age, and he was quick to learn to ride and handle horses, more so than his ancestors. He had a tenacious memory and loved to talk. He was economical, but he well remembered both favors and injuries. He resembled his father not only in his voice, but in his whole appearance. He was also like his father in his walk and in the timbre of his voice. He had a quick mind, but his speech was slow. He was, like his father, an avid listener to history, and he was very willing to follow good advice. Baldwin was scarcely thirteen years old when his father died. He had an elder sister named Sibylla, born of the same mother. She was raised in the convent of St. Lazarus at Bethany by Lady Evetta, the abbess of the convent, who was her father's maternal aunt. When Baldwin's father died, all the princes of the kingdom, both ecclesiastical and secular, assembled. All were in agreement as to what they wanted, and Baldwin was anointed and crowned solemnly and in the usual fashion in the Church of the Lord's Sepulchre on the 15th of July, four days after his father's death, by the Lord Amalric of good memory, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, in the presence of the archbishops, bishops, and other prelates of the Church. Unquote. Now, despite being universally acclaimed as king, Baldwin IV is not expected to live for long, right? Remember, he has leprosy at a time when it is an incurable progressive disease. But he does surprise everybody by living for several years. Now, for the first two years of his reign, until 1176, his cousin, Raymond of Tripoli, is regent. And as soon as he becomes regent in 1174, Raymond's first act is to sign a truce with Saladin. And when Baldwin comes of age in 1176, his first act is to revoke that truce. Probably a little bit of showing his independence is what's going on there, right? He is demonstrating that he is no puppet, and he might be 15 years old, but he is now in charge in Jerusalem. But this act does unleash uh, several years of low-level skirmishing between Saladin and the kingdom of Jerusalem. Baldwin, for obvious reasons, never marries in his own right, but during this time, there is some drama with his sister Sibylla, right? The sister who was raised at that convent. Well, especially given the fact that he himself is not going to produce an heir, Baldwin needs Sibylla to have a child, and he needs her to have one quickly, and he makes sure that she gets married. Uh, and she does have a son who she names Baldwin V, but during one of these skirmishes with Saladin's troops, uh, Sibylla's husband is killed, and she becomes a widow. And it is at this point that a character named Guy of Lusignan enters the stage. Now, Guy is a French knight. 
He is a relatively young French knight, and he has royal connections. His father is friends with King Louis, so he's a pretty good person for Sibylla to uh, get married to, at least Baldwin thinks at the time. So Baldwin helps to arrange this marriage, but over the next few years, uh, Baldwin begins to decide that Guy is maybe not the right choice to be raising his heir and to potentially uh, be the regent of the kingdom if uh, if he dies before little baby Baldwin V is old enough to be king himself. Guy is almost certainly going to be in charge of the kingdom, at least for a while, and Baldwin decides that Guy is weak. Now, understand that when Baldwin IV says that you're soft, this is coming from a guy who has his his retainers carry him into battle on a stretcher, uh, even when he's too sick anymore to actually do any fighting or ride a horse. Uh, There's a famous painting of Baldwin IV sitting in his stretcher and, you know, raising his sword, leading his men. So he's anything but soft. But he ultimately goes so far as to try to force Guy and Sibylla to annul their marriage. But Sibylla appears to have actually been in love with Guy. See, the two of them go and hide in the fortress of Ascalon. Uh, This is a place where they can essentially lock themselves in and just refuse to go to any of the annulment proceedings. Oh, and they have little Baldwin V locked up with them, so they have some bargaining ships here. Now, I'm not going to go into the entire history of these few years, but suffice it to say you could do like an entire AMC or BBC television series just on this period. The Crown Jerusalem edition. There's a whole lot of drama going on, but Baldwin ultimately uh, makes a peace treaty of his own with Saladin, ushering in a few years of peace in the kingdom of Jerusalem, and he gets around the drama with Guy and Sibylla altogether. See, he simply puts it in his will that Raymond of Tripoli, the man who was regent for him, well, Raymond of Tripoli is now to be Baldwin V's regent, if anything should happen to Baldwin IV, which it's probably going to, and indeed does, in 1185. King Baldwin IV does succumb to complications from his leprosy. And Raymond of Tripoli is again in charge of Jerusalem, right? We don't have to worry about Guy ever being regent or, God forbid, king, right? We're going to have Raymond as regent, and then eventually young Baldwin V will be old enough to take the throne himself, at least That's what we think is going to happen, but 
the infant Baldwin V is sickly in an era when childhood disease claimed many, many lives, and he is dead within the year. Well, with Baldwin V dead, there's a little bit of a problem. See, Raymond was the regent for Baldwin, but upon his death, the crown does not go to Raymond, it goes to his nearest blood relative, who would be Sibylla. But under the current law in Jerusalem, which is based on Norman law, with Sibylla being a married woman, well, Guy would then become king, which is exactly the outcome that everybody had been trying to avoid in the first place. Well, everybody except Guy and Sibylla. So uh, the other nobles have a council, and they come to an agreement, and they get in touch with Sibylla, and they make her an offer. They say, look, you can become queen, but first you got to accept the annulment with Guy. You want to get married afterwards? Fine. But you got to be annulled from Guy before you can be queen. And she agrees. She says, okay, well, I'll annul my marriage with Guy, but as long as I get to choose my next husband. And the council says, yeah, sure, whatever, just sign the paperwork, sign the annulment, let's get rid of this guy. So Sibylla goes ahead and signs the annulment agreement, and she is then crowned the Queen of Jerusalem and promptly remarries Guy. And then, after the wedding ceremony, famously hands him the crown, which he then puts on his own head. Way to go, Sibylla, finding the loophole. However, this is not all well and good for the kingdom of Jerusalem. See, as Baldwin the leper had seen it, Guy may have been a little soft on the Muslims, but it was actually Guy being a little bit too hard on them that would end up getting Jerusalem into trouble. See, all of this conniving with Guy and Sibylla to get on the throne had required what people today would call political capital. Right? That's, roughly speaking, a measurement of what a politician can get done, of what kind of favors they can call in, right? There's a limit to how many favors you can call in as a leader before those people who have been doing favors for you ask for a favor back. And that is what happens here. See, there is an aggressive noble named Reynald of Châtillon, and he is... Not coincidentally, Sibylla's biggest supporter amongst the nobles. And he has been violating Baldwin's truce with Saladin. He has been attacking and raiding Muslim caravans traveling on the road between Damascus and Mecca. This is 
interesting because one of the supposed causes for the first crusade was that Muslim powers were interfering with Christian pilgrims going to Jerusalem. Well, now we have uh, Reynald of Chatillon attacking Muslim pilgrims on the way to Mecca. So Saladin presumably does some research at this point to figure out who is actually in charge in Jerusalem, finds out it's Guy, and sends a message to Guy telling him to rein in his nominal vassal, right? Tell Reynald to stop attacking Muslim pilgrims. We have a truce. And Guy refuses to do this. In all probability, he can't. He doesn't have the political capital. And if he tells Reynald to stop, it's as likely that he's going to lose his kingship as that Reynald is actually going to stop. Regardless, this understandably infuriates Saladin. Here uh, Guy is, the new king of Jerusalem, with his vassal violating the truce, and he's not going to do anything about it. So Saladin begins preparing his army to attack the kingdom of Jerusalem. And it looks like Jerusalem's not going to get much help on this one. Uh, Raymond of Tripoli stands aside. He renews his peace treaty with Saladin. And in the process, he is effectively breaking his oath of fealty to Guy. But what's he supposed to do? Tripoli is a tiny, tiny kingdom And, frankly, this is all Guy's fault. Well, by this point in 1187, there is already low-level raiding. Saladin has begun launching some retaliatory, deeper strikes into the kingdom of Jerusalem, uh, probing their defenses. In one case, a hundred knights Templar and a similar number of the knights Hospitaller are killed in a chance encounter. More importantly, at this encounter, the Grandmaster of the knights Hospitaller is killed. And the Grandmaster of the knights Templar barely makes it out alive. And this was just a chance encounter. Even so, the slaughter causes uh, Raymond to have a change of heart. And rather than the county of Tripoli standing aside, he is going to stand with Guy. So he goes to make peace, and he leaves his wife Esquiva in charge of the fortress of Tiberias. This is a fortress in modern-day Israel, uh, which is in the very southern end of the county of Tripoli, right on the border with Jerusalem. And Raymond thinks that Esquiva will be safe there, but as it turns out, Saladin learns that uh, Raymond has decided to stick with Guy after all, so he lays siege to that very fortress, the fortress at Tiberias. Now, upon hearing of this, Guy prepares to lead an army to relieve the siege. Now, there are several leaders in his entourage, including Raymond himself. Uh, right? Remember, Raymond, whose wife is inside the fortress, even he is saying, uh, do not go relieve this siege. That's what Saladin wants. 
Uh, Saladin's army is not cut out for besieging cities. There are a bunch of cavalry archers. They're going to give up and go home. Uh, but unfortunately, the more aggressive faction, led by Reynald, by the way, the guy who had been raiding those Muslim caravans, uh, that aggressive faction wins the day. So far from being weak, Guy orders all the garrisons in the kingdom emptied and sent to him at the city of Sephora, which is near Tiberias. On July 3rd, 1187, everything is ready. All the troops are in place, and the Crusader army sets out for Tiberias to relieve the siege. Now, this army consists of roughly 20,000 men, about 18,000 of them infantry, and the remainder of them knights. Saladin has somewhere between twenty and 40,000 men. That number's less clear, but they're not as heavily armed, and don't forget the Crusaders are expecting there to be a garrison and some soldiers inside the fortress as well. It's not undefended, so the fact that there are less of them than there are of Saladin's troops is not as intimidating as it would seem at this point. But the journey from Sephora to Tiberias involves crossing a short stretch of open desert. Uh, this is about eight miles of dry land, and there is one spring along the way in the village of Hatin. So the plan is to march the six miles to Hatin, uh, camp overnight, and uh, have a place to get a drink, water the horses, and then in the morning wake up, and instead of being eight miles from the battlefield, you're only two miles away from Tiberius at that point. You can go relieve that siege pretty easily. But even as soon as the Crusaders set out from Sephora, they start to be harassed by Saladin's horse archers. They're not just going to walk all of this way to Tiberius unmolested. No, no, no. Here is the account of a writer named Ernul, who was a squire present for the march. Ernul says, quote, They left the springs of Sapphira to go to the relief of Tiberius. As soon as they had left the water behind, Saladin came before them and ordered his skirmishers to harass them from morning to midday. The heat was so great that they could not go on so as to reach water. The king and all his men were too spread out and did not know what to do. They could not turn back, for the losses would have been too great. He sent to the Count of Tripoli, who led the vanguard, to ask his advice. The message came back that he should pitch his tent and make camp. The king gladly accepted this bad advice, though when he gave him good advice, he would never take it. Unquote. And what Ernul is saying here is, right, Raymond had recommended against relieving the siege, and Guy went and did it anyway, and that's bad, and now Raymond recommends making camp, and Guy does it and goes along with him, and that's also bad. Regardless, the Crusaders set up camp 
on one half of a split volcanic mound. It's two lumps of ground with sort of a, almost a scalloped area between them. And that is the top of a very, very, very ancient, very, very long dead volcano. It's just a volcanic mound these days called the Horns of Hattin. And where the Crusaders are camped is almost within sight of the wells at Hattin. But Saladin already controls the town. The Crusaders are not going to get any water without a fight. And they're not even going to get a lot of rest overnight. Uh, Saladin has his men gather dry brush from the area and pile it upwind of the Crusader camp and light it on fire so that there's smoke blowing through the camp and irritating the Crusaders' eyes and making them even more parched. And some of the Muslim soldiers stand outside the Crusader camp, banging on their shields and singing songs all night just to keep the Crusaders awake, to further increase their stress and discomfort and erode their morale. And the next morning, when Guy's army of Crusaders awakens, they find themselves completely surrounded on this mound and being pelted with arrows. Recognizing that the only way out is going to be to break out of this situation, Guy orders Raymond to lead the mounted knights in a charge against the Saracen center. Ernul writes, quote, When the king saw that Saladin was coming against him, he ordered the Count of Tripoli to charge. It is a right belonging to the barons of the kingdom that, when the whole army is in their lordship, the baron on whose land the battle is to take place leads the first division and is out in front. On entering his land, he leads the vanguard, and on leaving leads the rearguard. Accordingly, since Tiberius was his, the Count of Tripoli took the forward position. The Count and his division charged at a large squadron of Saracens. The Saracens parted and opened a way through and let them pass. Then, when they were in their midst, they closed in on them. Only ten or twelve knights from the Count's division escaped. Among them were the Count of Tripoli himself and Raymond the son and the Prince of Antioch, and the four sons of the Lady Tiberius. When the Count saw that they were defeated, he did not dare go to Tiberias, which was only two miles away, for he feared that if he shut himself up in there and Saladin found out, he would come and take him. He went off with such company as he had and came to the city of Tyre. After this division had been defeated, the anger of God was so great against the Christian host because of their sins that Saladin vanquished them quickly. Between the hours of terse and nuns, that's seven in the morning and three in the evening, he won the entire field. Unquote. So Raymond tries to break out, 
breaks partway out, is surrounded. Most of the riders are killed. One wonders if they might have done a little better if their horses hadn't also been parched. And Guy is left with mostly foot soldiers, and the rest of the battle consists of a series of desperate crusader charges, uh, where they will charge downhill towards Saladin's men, and Saladin's men will run away, and then you know, the crusaders try not to break too far away from their formations, well, they'll fall back to safety, and then more of Saladin's men will appear with bows and arrows and start shooting at them, and the process will repeat over and over. And like Godfrey outside Jerusalem in the First Crusade, Guy rallies his men around the True Cross for a final charge. Right, This piece of wood that is part of the cross that Christ was crucified on, that is part of now this giant golden symbol of the Crusaders, he rallies around that, and his men make one more try at Saladin's lines. But they're hopelessly outnumbered, they're parched, they're exhausted, and they stand no chance. And at the end of the day... They are forced to surrender and take what mercy they can. The Battle of Hattin is an unmitigated disaster for the Crusaders, right? It's as bad as the Second Crusade, really. Not only do they lose an army, they lose the True Cross, right? The symbol of God's favor on the Crusaders has disappeared. And this is how Ernul sums up Saladin's victory. Quote, He captured the king, the master of the temple, Prince Reynald, the Marquis William, Amory the constable, Humphrey of Toron, Hugh of Jubail, Plivian, Lord of Botran, and so many other barons and knights that it would take too long to give the names of all of them. The Holy Cross was also lost. Later, in the time of Count Henry, a brother of the temple came to him and said that he had been at the great defeat and had buried the Holy Cross and knew where it was. If he could have an escort, he would go look for it. Count Henry gave him an escort and his permission to go. They went secretly and dug for three nights, but could not find anything. Then he went back to the city of Acre. Unquote. And so the true cross, much like the Ark of the Covenant, disappeared from history. And as for King Guy, well, after the battle, Saladin would magnanimously offer him a drink of water, a sign that his life was to be spared. And we have this account from the Arab historian Ibn Fadlallah al-Umari. Quote, When the battle had come to an end, the sultan sat down in a tent. The king of the Franks was brought in, and the sultan asked him to sit down at his side. 
The king was very hot and thirsty, and the sultan gave him snow-covered water to drink, and the king of the Franks gave some of it to the prince, Reynold, lord of Carrick, that's the Reynold who had been raiding Saladin's caravans and pilgrims, and the sultan said to him, This damned man did not drink water with my permission. If it had been so, he would be safe. The sultan then spoke to the prince, and rebuked and scolded him for his breach of faith and his attempted attack against the two sacred famous cities. The sultan himself rose, and with his own hand he cut the prince's neck. A violent fear seized the king of the Franks, but the sultan reassured him. Unquote. So Saladin takes revenge on Reynal, but spares Guy, and so it would go with most of the Crusader soldiers, almost all of whom were allowed to live. The knights and nobility, of course, are held for ransom, and the knights templar and the knights hospitaller are executed to a man because of their vows as holy warriors. Then in the aftermath, Saladin proceeds to capture several nearby settlements. Remember, he had stripped the garrisons from Jerusalem's cities and fortresses to put together his army. And by September 20th, 1187, Saladin's army of 20,000 have besieged 4,000 crusaders in the city of Jerusalem. The city, already packed with refugees from other towns that Saladin has taken, well, they have no choice but to surrender on October 2nd. Now, the kingdom of Jerusalem itself would remain for some years yet. It would retain some land around the Mediterranean coast, but the Crusaders would be expelled from the city of Jerusalem itself. That city would be ruled by Saladin's new Ayyubid Caliphate. And we haven't heard the last of King Guy either. See, Guy would be released, ransomed from Damascus a year later, and he would attempt to restore his kingdom of Jerusalem. His actions and the response of the Christian West would kick off the Third Crusade, where we'll see more of Saladin and his Ayyubid Sultanate. These events would ultimately lead to the complete destruction of the remaining Crusader states. And that's why they're relevant. Hello again, it's Dan, and I'm here to ask for your help. See, 
We're trying to promote this show and get the word out to as many people as possible. So, if you have a minute, please share on your favorite social media. Send a link to the episode or even to our website at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. If this is your first time listening to the show, don't miss a future episode. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Google, Spotify, or just about any other service you want to listen to a podcast on. You can find an RSS link as well as a link to all these other services, again, at dantollerpodcast.com. If you want news on the latest episodes or anything that is upcoming in the world of relevant history, you can find us at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter or at Dan Toller on Facebook. Finally, if you've got a few dollars and you'd like to provide some financial support to the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash Podcast. Alternatively, you can also support the show at subscribestar.com. You can find us there at Relevant History. And for everything else, including links to interviews and my blog, which may or may not ever get updated, once again, Dan Toller Podcast, Dan T-O-L-E-R Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.